A large portion of the Jewish nation has returned to its homeland, but the heart, soul, and mind of much of the Jewish nation are still in exile mode. This state of affairs must and will inevitably change. This is Torah Nation TV, and we are listening to a full-length audio shiur by Machon Chilo's Rabbi David Bar Chaim on the topic of Why do we light candles on Hanukkah? Shalom Aleichem. I'm pleased to be here with you once again. And Yashar Kochachem to all of you for finding, finding the time to be here tonight. So, without further ado, let us begin uh, talking about Hanukkah. Now, there is one thing I forgot to do. Um, a Sidur. Do we have a, a regular standard Sidur available? Very good. That's excellent. That's fine. The reason I'm asking for a Sidur is because I wish to read a few words from uh, Alanisim. As it appears in any Sidur that you might open. <coughs> so, as we all know, it begins with the words Alanisim, Wala Gevuroth, etc., etc., Wala Milhamoth, which we'll speak about. And then it goes on to say, Bimematithyahu, Ben Yohanan, I'm not going to read all of it, we're all quite familiar with the, with the uh, language, with the wording. Waharken, after the fighting, etc., which is mentioned here, about Masata Giburim Biyad Haloshim, Warabim Biyad Ma'atim, Utmaim Biyad Tahurim, etc., etc. It's a very important uh, clause here, which should be mentioned actually. In this version here, it says, Wazadim. That's one version. There's also another Nusach which appears in Rav Sa'ad Gaon and other ancient sources where the Nusach is Ufoshe'im biyad osethoratecha or biyad osethora, which I tend to believe is even a more more uh, authentic version. So it, it clearly speaks about the division, the very unfortunate and tragic division that existed within the Jewish people at that time. And unfortunately, history has a way of repeating itself, and I feel that we're living in a similar period today as well. There were those who were dedicated to the Torah, and those are the Oseh Torah, or according to this Nusach, Oseh Torah Techa, and there were the as it says here, the Zedim, or the other Nusach, or Foshim, who were not dedicated to the business of being Jewish and uh, living according to the tenets and the precepts and the uh, essential values of the Jewish people that we have inherited from the time of Avraham Avinu down to the present day. And then after all this fighting, etc., was over, Alright, that's what it says. Now we can put this aside for a moment. Now we have a source sheet, and we will look at uh, at least uh, some, maybe most of these sources. I don't know if we'll cover all of them, but we'll do what we can do. And we won't look at them in order either. First of all, I want you to look at source number two, which is from the Tur. The Tur, when he introduces uh, the topic of Hanukkah, he quotes from the Tamud Bavli, which is also quoted here on the second page. You can see it's quoted here 
at the very bottom of the second page, number five. It's essentially the same quote. The tool writes as follows. The tool, of course, was Rabbeinu Yaakov, the son of the Rosh, who wrote the famous halachic uh, handbook, uh, one of the <coughs> most outstanding works of, of halacha ever written. My Hanukkah, this is a quote from the Gemara. What is Hanukkah all about, or why do we light candles? That's, that's also a discussion we'll have to have in a moment. What exactly is the meaning of that question? My Hanukkah. Detanya, because it was taught as follows. In other words, on the 25th day of Kislev begins, begin, uh, begins a period of eight days during which we do not mourn and we do not fast. And then it goes on to explain. This is a quote from Rilaf Ta'anith, which is the next source uh, mentioned on, on, this, on this page, number three. What, what's, what does the Mirilaf uh, Ta'anith or the Perush on Mirilaf Ta'anith go on to explain? When the Goyim, the enemies of the Jewish people, entered the Mikdash, all the oil that was present, that was kept in the Mikdash, was defiled. When the Hashmonaim, or the Jews, led by the Hashmonaim, by the family of Matithyahu uh, and uh, his son Yehuda uh, Maccabi, who was the, the military genius who, who led this revolt, this campaign, when they took over uh, the Mikdash, they retained, they regained, I should say, they regained control over the Mikdash. This was after a number of years that Jews had not been allowed, not only in the Mikdash, but even in Yerushalayim. Jews had been banned and, and driven out of the entire area of Yerushalayim, and certainly of the Mikdash. And now they were able to return to the Mikdash, and they found only one container of oil that had not been uh, defiled. And there was enough in that pach, as we all know the story, to light for one to burn for one day, and there was a miracle that lasted for eight days. All right, so we read Al-Anisim a moment ago, and now we just read the Tur. And the Tur is actually just quoting the Talmud Bavli, which I mentioned to you is, is quoted also here on the, on the bottom of page two, exactly the same words. And furthermore, it's also mentioned again on page one, in source number three, which is from Rilath Ta'anith. And you will see that that which the Torah quotes, and that which is from Tamud Bavli, Masechet Shabbat, you will see here there are a number of additions to the Rilath Ta'anith, a number of Perushim. They're called, it's called the Perush or the Gemara. is Aleph, Bet, Gimel, and goes on Dalad, He, and Bav, and Zayin on the next page, which we'll look at in a moment. And you will, see, you will note that it's the first of these Perushim, Aleph, which is quoted by the Talmud Bavli. So we read Al-Anisim, and we read the Torah, which is, as we now see, based on the Talmud Bavli, and based on, on one of the Perushim that appears here in Mikrath Tanit. And at this point, I think I can ask you a question. So what's missing in Al-Anisim? It says, We had the Likul Nerod Bahasot Koshecha. 
Who says that? It's lacking the nays. No? In other words? Didn't see. It doesn't mention anything about oil, a miraculous burning of oil. It just says they entered the Mikdash, and what did they do? Uh, correct? It doesn't say anything about a miracle. But here in the tour, based on the Talmud Bavli, based on at least one statement in the Megillah Ta'anit or the Perusha Megillah Ta'anit, because Megillah Ta'anit, by the way, is a very ancient text, goes back to the days when the Mikdash still, the second Mikdash was still standing. And that, and that consists, or the original text of Megillah Ta'anit, consists only of the first words that appear in number three, which is called here the Mishnah, and all the rest are additions that were added later to explain or to expand on what was said there. What we notice is that in Al-Anisim, which we say for eight days, several times a day, Tefillah, Bikath Amazon, etc., etc., it doesn't mention anything about a Ness. That is to say, the supernatural burning of oil for much longer than the laws of nature would dictate. That's not mentioned. Whereas in the tour, in, in the Talmud Bavli, and the tour is just quoting the Talmud Bavli, that is the, the focus of the, of the discussion. Because all it says is, it, it mentions that the Yevanim were, were about doing mischief, and uh, eventually the Chashmanim were able to uh, overcome them. And then it focuses, immediately goes on to talk about the oil. In other words, the, the entire focus is about a certain quantity of oil that burned for uh, a, a time, a span of time longer than expected. That's, that's the focus of the whole, of, of the discussion. In actual fact, if you look in the Talmud Bavli, uh, on this page here, which is Dach Kaf Aleph, as it's mentioned here, Kaf Aleph Bet, the bottom, on page two, it's the same quote from the Talmud Bavli. The question the Gemara asks is, my Hanukkah? And here we have an interesting uh, point, interesting fact to take note of. Rashi explains, my Hanukkah, <coughs> why was it, uh, why was this Chag, or these eight days established, why do they exist? Why do we celebrate Hanukkah? And then it goes on to talk about the Nespach Hashem. But the Maharsha, interestingly enough, disagrees with Rashi. The Maharsha says that the question, my Hanukkah, does not mean, why does Hanukkah exist bichlal? Rather, the question is, why do we light candles on Hanukkah? The question is, why, why, why do we light candles, specifically candles? After all, there, were, there are other occasions when there were great uh, victories and salvations. For example, Purim, correct? And we don't light candles on Purim. We do something else. We read the Merilah, we have a Silva, we say Al Nisin, but we don't light candles. Why do we light candles? We also celebrate other Yeshuoth on Pesach, we don't light candles. Correct? Etc. So the, the question according to the Marashah, and I think this explanation is, is, is essentially more correct, is why do we light candles on Hanukkah? Why, why are the candles? And in response to that question, the answer is given according to this version. Anyhow, the first explanation given here uh, in source number three uh, to the words of uh, the Merilat Ta'anit, the explanation is given that because there was a Nes Pachashem, in order to commemorate that Nes, we light candles. However, if we go on to read the next 
uh, explanations, the following explanations that appear in the Gemara, or in the Perush on Mughilah Ta'anif, then we will see that there are, there are other ways of, of uh, explaining why we light candles. And in fact, this is what we see. There are other explanations, not necessarily in Nesbach Hashemim. If we look in number, in Oth Beth, towards the bottom of page one, here the question is, After all, what does the word Hanukkah mean? Inauguration. Right, to inaugurate the use or the... Or the uh, the, um, the uh, celebration of something or the use of something, in this case, the Mikdash. The Mikdash had been used by the, by the Greco-Syrians and their Jewish uh, followers and, and supporters. It had been used for the purpose of, of Avodah Zarah. The Mikdash, the entire Mikdash, and particularly the, the Mizbeach, had been, had been defiled by Avodah Zarah, and you cannot... You can no longer use that Mizbeah for Korbanov to Hashem. So that Mizbeah had to be entirely uh, removed. Stones had to be, had to be uh, dismantled. The stones had to be removed. And a new Mizbeah had to be built. And the Mizbeah is not a small little thing, one meter by one meter. It's, it's quite a large, uh, quite a large construction, piece of construction. And it takes a little bit of time to, to do such a thing. So what, we, what Hanukkah, and the word Hanukkah means inauguration, and to begin, re-begin the use of something, where, where the use has been, has, was, was ceased at some point for some reason. In this case, it, was, it came to an, an end, because the, the Torah true Jews had been uh, driven out of Yerushalayim, out of the Mikdash, or any Kohen who was... Uh, uh, who believed in, in Torah Hashem and not in, in the ways of the, of the uh, Jewish assimilationists and their Greek, Greco-Syrian masters, uh, they, they, of course, were driven out of the Mikdash and they appointed their own kind of priests. So the Mikdash had fallen into disuse, at least from a Jewish perspective. It had served uh, for the, had been used for the worship of Zeus, the, the head of the Greek gods, etc., and that had to be removed. So what we're talking about is uh, a reopening of the Mikdash. That's called, that's the word Hanukkah, Hanukkah HaMizbeach. That's what we're talking about, Hanukkah HaMizbeach. Now, this is not a new concept. This is not the first time in history that the Jews had built a Mizbeach and had to do a Hanukkah. The first was, on, was in the Midbar with Moshe Rabbeinu, the Mishkan, was the first, was the first Mikdash. Was, that was the first Hanukkah. That's exactly what it says here in Orthobeth. It says, When Shlomo built the permanent Beth Mikdash in Yerushalayim, as it says in the Pasuk, So why in this case? This is, another, this is a third instance of a Hanukkah. So why here is it eight days and not seven days? That's the question. What does it say here? Right. In other words, having re-entered the Mikdash, and have, they had to remove all that had, was Pasul and Tameh, and rebuild and 
re, uh, restock the Mikdash with all that was required for its operation. And the process of, of removing the Mizbeach that had been defiled and building a new Mizbeach and uh, doing certain other things that had to be done. For example, building a menorah, creating a menorah as we'll see in a moment, it also had to be done because the, the goyim had taken away the golden menorah, which was worth a tremendous amount of money, uh, as well as many other klesh sharet, many other vessels. So this all had to be reinvented, recreated from nothing. And it took them eight days. So the answer, according to number Beth, as opposed to Aleph, is not because there was a nes pachashemin. The answer is because it was an, it was an eight-day period of preparation. And to commemorate those eight days of preparation, <coughs> excuse me, to commemorate those eight days of preparation for restarting the Mikdash, uh, the operation of the Mikdash, they, they uh, decided to, to fix an eight-day period of, of celebration and commemoration on a yearly basis. That's Hanukkah. So there is a difference between Aleph and between Beth. Aleph speaks about Nesbach Hashem, and Beth does not. Sorry? So according to this explanation, those the original eight days, they wouldn't have let uh, at all. I'm not sure about that. And you will see in a moment, if we continue, you'll see why I say that. Because it's possible that they were able to light candles in the menorah, which is a simple thing, relatively speaking, to put together. Whereas the Mizbeach, I think, took longer. We'll see in a moment. We move on to the next explanation in Rilaf Tanit, which is Gimel. <laughs> Why do we celebrate it every year for all time? Why was it not sufficient to celebrate it that year when the event took place? In other words, we, this is a brief reference to the fact that we say Halel for eight days. And there's only one other time during the year when we say Halel consecutively for eight days. And that's Sukkot. Otherwise, Halel is only said usually for one day. In Pesach, real halal, full halal is only said the first day, right? The fact that we say halal the other, other days is only a minhag. That's why it's called chassir halal. That's why it's not the full halal. So saying halal for eight days is an unusual fact. So it stresses here in what we just read in Oath of Gimel that this was an unusual event. This was the Jewish people who had their backs to the wall. Uh, there was a very uh, serious and real danger and possibility that Judaism would be, would be shortly wiped out. That was the express intention of the Greco-Syrians and their Jewish supporters who ran the government, who, ran, who were, they were the, the legal authority in the country. And this was an uprising by what I believe was a majority of the Jews, but they were the weak, the downtrodden, the, the disenfranchised within the country. And they were able to turn the situation around. That's a tremendous event, a tremendous miracle, as we'll discuss in a moment. And, there, and we say Halil to celebrate this, this salvation. That's what we just read in, in Oth Gimel. Now we continue on to Dalar, on to page number two. And here, the question here is more explicitly that which, that which we mentioned a moment ago, that the Maharsha explained. What was the Gemara asking when it asked, my Hanukkah, what is Hanukkah about? And the Maharsha explained, the question really is not why do we have Hanukkah, because obviously you have to thank Hashem for such a salvation and such a victory, which was apparently against all odds and uh, was, was uh, not something one could expect or, or predict. Here the question in, number, in Dalad is, Ma Here the question is specifically, why 
was it? Uh, why was there a takana to light candles on Hanukkah? So we know the, the Iwanim entered the Heichal and they defiled it and they worshipped Abu Dazara. There was uh, nothing with which to light. Now take note of what it says. What does it say here? Does that sound like Nesbach Hashem or does that sound like something different to you? It's not talking about a lack of oil. It's talking about a lack of a menorah. There was no menorah. How do you... Lighting candles in the, in the Hechal every day in the Mikdash is a miswat aseh in, in and of itself. It's, a, one of, it's actually a relatively simple avodah to perform. You just need some kind of candelabrum and you need some oil and some wicks and, and you light them. And the Kohen, who's tahor, uh, hopefully, if he's tahor, if all the Kohanim are tamed, then tumad basibur, and you go ahead anyhow. But uh, if there is a Kohen who's tahor, and you have shem in this tahor, you go ahead and you light it, and that's that's the avodah in itself. It has nothing to do with whether you can offer a, a korban on the mizbeach, which was defiled, or not. So that's why I asked, answered your question in that fashion. This was something that's very relatively easy to do. How long does it take to get, as it says here, to find seven uh, pieces of of iron? of the right shape and length, and to cover them uh, in some other metal to improve the look of them. They were not made, it was not made of gold. The Torah speaks about making a menorah of gold, but the halakha is, and we learn it from here, the halakha is that if gold is not available, if the tzibur hasn't got the gold right now to produce a, a, a menorah of gold, then you produce a, a, a menorah of anything at all. Any material that you can get your hands on, you use that and you build a menorah and you use it for the miswa of hadlakath neroth in the, in the, in the, in the heichal. So the question here is, why do we light candles on Hanukkah? <coughs> Excuse me, why do we light ha- candles on Hanukkah? And the answer is to commemorate the following event. And it'll become more clear in a moment. When we move, we move on to the next letter or two. But already here it's becomes it's quite clear. When the Jews entered the Mikdash, they found uh, a desolate, defiled place before their eyes. They, they knew it had been used for Avodah Zarah. There was a huge uh, statue, an idol of Ozeus and other Greek gods in the Heichal, in the Mikdash. They knew the Mizbeach had been used to sacrifice pigs, etc., etc. They had to remove all of these things and to do all of that and to recreate the Mizbeach, as I said, takes a little bit of time. However, to come up with a mizbeah, with a, I'm sorry, with a menorah, at least a provisional menorah, until you can perhaps find gold, etc., and do it, do it, the, 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 uh, make the ideal and the lechatchila type of menorah, that is something that can be done rather quickly. Pieces of iron uh, welded together or somehow joined together into the roughly the right shape with some kind of vessel or receptacle on the top into which you can pour some oil, that doesn't take perhaps more than half a day to do, correct? So here we begin to understand what, what this statement means. It means to say the very first item in the Mikdash that the Jews could recreate and, and uh, with which they could actually begin the process of Hanukkah, Hamikdash, of reinstituting the Avodah, was the, was the menorah. And therefore the menorah became a symbol of these events. 
again, it's not talking about an Ispach Hashem, and it's talking about the fact that of all the various things that had to be done, the menorah was the first that could be achieved, that could be implemented and, and put into practice. And that's what they did. Now we go on to read further in, in Oth Hay, and then we'll continue again in a moment with the others. In Hay and Vav and Zayin, it talks more about the actual lighting of the candles. In other words, why do we say Halil for eight days? So this is a, a separate discussion, which we, we, won't, we won't go into length right now. We already mentioned that it's not, a, it's not the normal uh, thing, the normal way of things that we say Halil for eight days at a time. Halil is said uh, on specific days of the year. And Hanukkah is, is, is one of two occasions throughout the year when we say Halil eight days in a row. There has to be a good reason for that. So he goes on to explain. It says here, "Lo lamadacha shekol teshua uteshua sheasa akadosh baruchu liYisrael hem makdimim lefano bahalel uveshevah." In other words, basically, we are being told here that this is something from which we should learn for all time. That when Am Yisrael finds itself in dire straits, and eventually Hashem is, comes to our aid and helps us to overcome our enemies, and a great salvation ensues, we have to thank Hashem. And the, the formalized way of doing so is to say Halil. And then in, in Oth, Wow and Zayin, it goes on to talk about the actual lighting of the candles, which is the other miswa that we have on Hanukkah. Hanukkah, we have basically Halil and Hodaya, which is two sides of the same coin. Halil is Halil and Hodaya is Ananisim, thanking Hashem in, in Bikat Amazon in Tfilah. And the other miswa, there will be a separate concept which we have uh, during the eight days of Hanukkah, is lighting the candles. So what we understand from Oth Dalet, the top of page two, is that the lighting the candles became symbolic because of the fact that it was the first thing, the first action that could be taken in the Mikdash, the first avodah which is a miswan in and of itself that could be performed in the newly, uh, in the reconquered and, uh, and, and now slowly being made uh, tahor and, and, and usable and, and fit for use once again. This was the first act that could be taken. This was the, and therefore the Hanuk, the Mizbeh, the, the, I'm sorry, the Menorah, and lighting the candles became symbolic and, and the, the, the iconic symbol for Hanukkah for all time. According to this explanation, again, it's nothing, there was no Nespach Hashem according to this. Only according to the uh, statement in, in Oth Aleph, which is quoted by the Tamud Bavli, was there a Nespach Hashem. And according to all the other explanations and statements here in Megillah Tanith, there wasn't a Nespach Hashem. And even when it asks the question, why do we light candles, it doesn't give that explanation. It gives a different explanation. And I don't think it's coincidental that the Talmud Bavli, of all the different statements that we found here, the, Bav, the Talmud Bavli chose to mention Dafka the first one, speaking about Nespach Hashem. Because this is not the only time that we see that the Talmud Bavli uh, does not take a very positive approach towards uh, actions and events that do not involve some supernatural, do not have some super, supernatural element attached to them. I'm referring to the fact that 
when we look at how the Tamud Bavli, as opposed to the Tamud Yerushami, relates to the uh, revolt of Bar Kochva, Shimon ben Kozeba HaMelech, as that was his name, Shimon ben Kozeba. He was known as Bar Kochva, that was a kinui, based on the drasha on the pasuk, Dorach Kochav Mi'akov, that, uh, that Rabbi Akiva applied to him. But his name was Shimon ben Kozeba, and he was known as Shimon ben Kozeba HaMelech, and this is how the Rambam refers to him. And his revolt, which for quite some time was very successful, he was the de facto ruler of Eretz Yisrael uh, for something like uh, two years, maybe a bit more, until the Rom- Romans were able to regroup and uh, call up most of their, of their legions throughout the empire. They brought huge numbers of, uh, of soldiers and military material to Eretz Yisrael in order to to quash the, the uprising. Initially, they, they were defeated by, by the Jews who, who rose up against them, led by Shimon ben Koziba, by Bar Kochva. And if you look at the Tamud Bavli's attitude towards them, they basically make light of the whole thing. He's, he's not given very much credit at all. What it states there is as follows. It says that... Uh, the Mashiach has to be someone who can uh, perceive things, Beruah HaKodesh. So it states over there in the Talmud Bavli. And the Chachamim tested Bar Kochva to see if he was such a person, and they saw that he was unable to do so. And then it says Katluhu. The word Katluhu literally means they killed him, which doesn't make any sense, just because someone does, let's just say, he didn't have Ruach HaKodesh, which and he probably didn't. That's not a reason to kill someone, obviously. <laughs> Um, what the word means is that bitluoto. In other words, they, they said he's not. He's not. The, he's not the person we're looking for. He's not the Mashiach. So forget him. Uh, and this, by the way, it's not just my interpretation. The Radbaz I found after I figured this out myself. I saw the Radbaz says says the same thing um, in his Perush on the Rambam. That's what it, it means. They they negated his his status as the, as a possible Mashiach, and that's all they have to say really about about him at that point, at least. You do not hear anything very positive. Uh, uh, there's no real, uh, you know, sheva or or praise uh, said with re- with respect to Bar Kochva. In fact, you you get the impression that uh, there's also a certain amount of criticism of him. Whereas, if you look in the Talmud Yerushalmi, uh, in Masechet Taniyot, the last chapter one sees something quite different. There it says, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai says the name of his teacher, Rabbi Akiva. He says that when Rabbi Akiva saw how uh, Shimon ben Koziba, Bar Kochva, fought, and initially, as we said, he was very successful against the Romans, he said about him, Rabbi Akiva said, Den Malka Mashiach, this is the Melech HaMashiach. Now, we all know, and Rambam also uh, knows, Rambam quotes this, at the end of Mishneh Torah, in Yilchoth Malachim Omilhamot, Perek Yudalev, Rambam quotes this statement of Rabbi Akiva, or this fact that Rabbi Akiva supported Bar Kochva and saw in, in him a messianic figure. And Rambam goes on to say, even though it's true that in the fullness of time it came, became apparent that he was not the Mashiach and he was eventually uh, killed by the Romans, as were hundreds of thousands of Jews, unfortunately, at that time, and eventually the revolt was not successful. Nevertheless, the fact, so says Rambam, 
The fact that Rabbi Akiva thought that this could be the Mashiach proves that the Melech HaMashiach does not have to be a miracle worker. He doesn't have to be Mahadesh or Thoth or Mofathim, as the Rambam writes there. He doesn't have to be Mahayeh HaMithim. He doesn't have to do miracles. That's not his job. That's not what Imoth HaMashiach is all about. Some people think it is true. And that's, that's the, what we, the, the message we, we hear quite clearly coming off the, the daf of the Tamud Bavli. But other people thought otherwise. And it's therefore no surprise that Rambam, uh, Rambam who has a much more down-to-earth, rational uh, approach to these and many other subjects, Rambam says that uh, the Melech HaMashiach does not have to be a miracle work. He doesn't have to be a Baal Ruach HaKodesh and, and do supernatural and uh, acts and, and deeds that normal people cannot do. And he learns this from the Talmud Yerushalmi. The Ra'avad immediately says in his note on the side, he says, I don't understand. It says over there in Masechet Sanhedrin, the Talmud Bavli, the opposite. And, and, they're, and they're both right. They're absolutely both right. The, diff- the question is, which of these two approaches, which of these two hashkafoth do we, do we follow, do we adopt? And if I tell you that these two hashkafoth, these two approaches, these two understandings of many aspects of Torah Judaism have been with us for the last 2,000 years, right down to the present day. You can follow these two parallel lines, these two parallel hashkafoth throughout history. And you can see that the Bavli says A, and many centuries later, the Ravad continues on that very same derech, precisely. And the Rambam follows, the Tabud Yerushami says B, and many centuries later, the Rambam says exactly, based on the Talmud Yerushami, he says the same thing. And you can follow these two parallel lines which do not meet. These are two lines which never shall meet, in fact, because you, can, you cannot uh, somehow find some kind of compromise on this issue. Either the Mashiach has to be a miracle worker, or he doesn't have to be a miracle worker. Or either the Migdash falls from heaven, as Rashi writes, and the Ravad almost certainly agrees with that statement, based on certain other things that the Ravad writes, or the Mikdash is, is, is built by human beings, which is what the Rambam says, which is what history tells us also. That even, even in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, the Mishkan was built by human beings. It didn't fall from heaven. The first Mikdash was built by human beings. It was built by Shlomo HaMelech, by Yisrael. It didn't fall from heaven. The same was true of the second Mikdash. Why should the third Mikdash be different from all previous Mikdashim? That's a very good question. But the fact is there are those who claim it should be different and those who say it should not be. And I believe that it's quite clear that those who see that only something really worthy of Hallel and getting something that's worth getting excited about is something which is of a supernatural nature are those who also expect or want to have some kind of Nes Pachashem with regards to Hanukkah. That turns it into something worth celebrating from their perspective. Whereas uh, if it was just some sort of earthly normative event, there was a rebellion, there was, they, were, they were good at uh, fighting a guerrilla war, Yudah Maccabi was a great military genius, which he was, and the Jews were very tenacious and, and courageous fighters, which they were, and they were able to win. Okay, that's, that's nice, that's good, but it's not something to have an eight-day celebration for for the next 2,230 years. 
this, this dichotomy, this, these two ways of understanding many central events in our history is exactly what we're talking about here in my view. If you look, as I did some years ago, if you look, take any book of Hasidut, like the Sfathemeth or Reb Tzodek HaKohem or any number of Hasidic texts talking about Hanukkah, you will find that the one and only topic that is discussed is Nesbach Hashem. They don't talk about the Milhamot, they don't talk about the Givuroth, they only talk about Nesbach Hashem. That's the one thing that is spoken of ad infinitum. And when you see how the Talmud Bavli, with all the various texts that we just looked at, chose to focus specific, specifically on that one uh, point, to focus on that uh, issue of Nespa Hashem, and you can understand why, I think. On the other hand, and again, this is no coincidence, if we now look at source number one on the sheet before us, we look at the Rambam and see how he describes the events of Hanukkah, we see it's, it's a, a very different description of events from that which we saw in number two in the tour. Even though they're describing the Chorah, the same events. And it's not, by the way, that Rambam doesn't write that there was a Nespa Hashem, and he does write there was. But see in which fashion he, how he words it and, and where he places the emphasis. He writes as follows, Bevaith Sheni, Keshem Yawan, so first of all, Rambam here is wearing the cap of an historian for a moment, which is something, by the way, that the tour did not do. The tour, Rambam is not a historian, obviously he's not. Rambam did not set himself the task of writing Jewish history. And frankly, Rambam did not know nearly as much as we know today about that period of Jewish history. He didn't have the texts that we have today before us. For instance, the first book and the second book and the third book of the Maccabim and the books of Yosef and Matitiao, Josephus Flavius, he didn't have these texts. He could not have possibly known uh, most of what we know about those, those events. And yet, the Rambam knew at least some of, of the basic uh, facts, and he, and he takes upon himself at least to give us a, a very... Uh, basic and uh, rough outline. He writes, So there was, there was religious persecution against the Jews. So that's really telling us something we didn't hear before. In other words, he's telling us, you should know, the Jewish people found them in Eretz Israel found themselves in a situation where they could no longer live as Jews if they wished to remain in Eretz Israel. If they wanted to remain in Eretz Yisrael, they had to take on the ways, the customs, the culture, the religion of the Greco-Syrians. In other words, become goyim, gmurim, lechol davar. They had to uh, uh, ignore and, and forget Torah Moshe Rabbeinu. And that, 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 was, that was the only option. It was either die as a Jew or live as a goy. That was, those were the options. Because the, the, those were the, the decrees were such that it did, did not allow a Jew to live and inherit Yisrael and, and live as a Jew. More than that, Rambam says, They also stole from the Jews by all manners of subterfuge and decrees and laws and, and some uh, violence and, and robbery. They stole from the Jews, and they stole and raped their daughters, etc., etc. And also they entered the Mikdash. They, they knocked down, made uh, breaches in the walls. And they also defiled everything. 
The Jewish people suffered greatly at their hands. Again, none of this is mentioned in the tour. It's all glossed over as if there was some sort of you know, unpleasantness with the Greeks. And, uh, and eventually we got over it and we found some oil. And now let's celebrate because we found some oil that burned longer than, than that was expected. Rambam's explanation is, is, is entirely down to earth and, and real. He's telling us what it was like to live at that time. The Jews were suffering tremendous persecution, both on a personal level, in, in also in terms of their property, their, their, their families, their women folk, their, their also, also the possibility of remaining Jewish. There was, it was a tremendous time of trial and tribulation. And the Rambam continues, Until a great salvation came about, and it came about through the agency of Bnei Hashmonai, in other words, they fought and killed their enemies, and they saved the Jewish people from this terrible state of affairs. And more than that, and they established for the first time in nearly 400 years, they established a Jewish sovereign entity. Till this time, from the, from the destruction of the first temple. And then the Jews, most of the Jews were, were removed into Galuth, into exile. And then eventually they returned. And when they returned, they were still subjects uh, and under the thumb of the Persian emperors, and they were part of the Persian Empire. They were not sovereign, they were not free. And then later, the Alexander the Great came along, of course, and, and uh, was able to uh, topple the Persian Empire, and he himself took, took over all of the Persian Empire. They lived under, under the Greeks. Again, they were not sovereign, they were not free. Now, for the first time in four centuries, the Jews all of a sudden find themselves in a position where they are in charge in at least part of Eretz Yisrael, and they are able to establish their own, uh, their own government. This is a, a tremendous chidush. Again, something the Rambam takes note of. Rambam thinks it's important that we know this and understand this, but the Torah didn't think so. That's the fact. It's not there. It's also not in the Talmud Bavli. If you look in the Talmud Bavli, again, the Torah is just quoting the Talmud Bavli. If you ask the Torah, Rabbeinu Yaakov, why did you write it this way? And why did you not mention anything else? He will tell you, well, if you look on the bottom of page two. I'm just quoting from the Talmud Bavli over here. So I'm just doing, I'm just writing what the Talmud Bavli wrote. And, he's, and he would be right. But that's not the whole story. Rambam is giving us a much more complete uh, and much more um, correct understanding of what was actually happening. So Rambam writes, Now, technically speaking, by the way, this statement is not true. Uh, again, Rambam is, is basing himself here on, on, on a certain source called Mughilat Antiochus, which is uh, an unreliable source, but that was the only source Rambam had in front of him that described anything at all like the historical events. What it means to say really is that from the time of the revolt of the Hashmonaim until the Hurban of Bayit Sheni, approximately 200 years uh, elapsed. But really, the Jews were only uh, sovereign and independent for about 100 years of that period, because then the Romans entered the country 
in the year 66 BCE, Luminyanam. And uh, from that moment on, the Jews were no longer really a sovereign, uh, independent nation any longer. But in Megillat Antiochus, which is not precise and not accurate, it says exactly the statement about 200 years. The Rambam is quoting it from there. But the idea, at least, the Rambam is conveying to us is correct, that the Jews, having um, successfully overcome the, the Greeks and, the, and their supporters, they were able to establish their own Jewish government in Eretz Yisrael, which lasted for a, a long time. And this was a, a, a very important and central event in Jewish history, yes. You see from here that Rambam thinks, Rambam considers the fact that whatever it is, it's that itself is something to note and something to, to be aware of and something to celebrate. This is clearly what the Rambam has in mind. And therefore, the Rambam goes on to say now in, in Halachabeth, And when they were victorious, And then they found the oil and it lit for eight days, etc. And the Rambam then writes in Gimel, Gimel, from the 25th of Kislev. And what, what, the way I believe one should understand what Rambam writes here is as follows. Because of that which I described in Halakha Aleph, says the Rambam, in other words, there was this terrible time of of persecution and, and, and disaster that, was, uh, that the Jewish people were facing. And had there not been a rebellion, and had it not been successful, uh, I believe historically there would, no, there would not have been a Jewish people. The Jewish people would have ceased to exist around that time. The, the Jewish, there were many Jews living in Chutzlaretz, in Bavel and Paras, true. But the spiritual center that, that gave cohesion and strength to the Jewish people was in Eretz Yisrael. If that center, if that spine, central spine of the Jewish people had collapsed, the Jewish people will certainly, I think, have disappeared altogether. In other words, this event of Hanukkah uh, is responsible for the fact that we're here, uh, sitting here together and discussing this, this, these events, and any, anything Jewish at all. There would, no be, there would not be a Jewish people. There would not, there would no, there were, the end of history, Jewish history would have ended at that time without, without this rebellion. That is what I, what I think is historically uh, accurate to say. And that's what Rambam described in Halakha Aleph, that there was this tremendous uh, time of persecution and tribulation, and eventually the Jews were able to rise up and defeat their enemies, and even establish their own independent sovereign government in Eretz Yisrael. That, Rambam says in Halakha Gimel, for that reason we say Halel. Why do I say that? Because there is no such thing in, in, the, in, in the Torah, in Halakha, there's no such concept as saying Halel because uh, a container of oil that you expected to burn for one day burned for two, three, four, or eight days. There is no such thing. If, if, we were to, if it were to happen to us tomorrow, if I, was, if I were to uh, light Shabbat candles this coming Friday afternoon with oil, and instead of extinguishing at some point during the night, it would burn on till Tuesday, 
would I immediately get up and say, well, Rabbi we have to start saying Hallel? Of course not. And if it happened to all of us together at the same time, we still wouldn't say Hallel. And if you don't believe me, and that's, that's okay, you don't have to believe anything I say. You can, my, my intention is only to present uh, the facts as I know them, and uh, you have to weigh everything up in your own minds. But I can tell you that the Maharal says exactly what I just told you now. The Maharal writes in his brief, small hibur on Hanukkah called Nermiswa, on page, uh, page Kafbeth, he writes exactly this. He says, the reason we say Halil has nothing to do with Nespach Hashem. He doesn't deny Nespach Hashem. He just says that has nothing to do with why you say Halil. He says, you don't say Halil because of, of the fact that Hashem uh, caused uh, a quantity of oil to burn longer than expected, even though that is supernatural. But it's not a reason for saying Halil. The reason you say Halil as defined by Hazal, is when there is a great Yeshua, when there's great, uh, we are facing great disaster, national disaster. As it says in Masech of Mirila, we are facing a situation of Maveth, and we end up finding ourselves Bahaim. In other words, when there's a Hassala, a Yeshua, mi Maveth lahaim, or mi Abduth laheruth, like in Mitzrayim, like in Pesach, then we say Halil. That's what the Gemara says in Mirila, that's what the Maharal states. He says, the reason we say Halil, the reason we say Al Nisim is not because of Nesbach Hashem. What you can claim, and that's true at least according to some of these sources, is that the reason we light candles is perhaps because of Nespach Hashem. And that's how I think what, what the Rambam meant. Because Rambam mentions Nespach Hashem in Halakha Beth, and then he goes on to say in Halakha Gimel, what we do therefore during the eight days of Hanukkah is we say Halil, Yemei Simcha wa Halil, and it's Umadlikim, it's a separate statement. Umadlikim bahem anaroth ba'erev. It's a separate miswa, it's a separate thing which has to do with Nespach Hashem. It's also true, furthermore, to say, as we pointed out earlier, that you can also understand all the events of Hanukkah, including the miswa of, of uh, Hadlakath Neroth, which is an unusual miswa, something we don't do on other such occasions, when there were great Yeshuot, such as Pesach, such as Purim. You could understand that without Nespach Hashem, as we saw in Yerilaf in, Tanit, uh, in Oth Dalet, that the reason that we light candles is to commemorate the fact that this was the first... <coughs> that we were able to successfully undertake in the, in the uh, Mikdash was, that was now in the process of being reactivated. And all this, excuse me one moment, how are we going for time? Okay. Another 10 minutes. All right. Um, all this connects to the Gemara, which I quote here in source number four on page two. The Gemara in the Tamud Bavlin Sechet Arachim. <coughs> the question asked by the Gemara here, the discussion begins with the following question. Why is it that on Pesach, we say Halel, that is to say Halel Shalem, full, real, full-blown Halel, only one day, the first day. Whereas all days of, of Sukkot, we say Halel Shalem, correct? Why is that? The Gemara goes on to say, The Hag Halukim Bekobonothehem, the Pesach and Halukim Bekobonothehem. In other words, when you have, on a Hag, you have a Korban Musaf. However, Korban, the Korban Musaf on Pesach on the first day is exactly identical to the Korban Musaf of day number two and three and four, etc. 
In other words, there's no hiluk, there's no difference between the musaf, between the days. So there's nothing new really about the day compared to the previous day. The Gemara says, this is why we say Halel only on the first day, because there's something, there's a certain lack of newness or, or some, something mehudash and something exciting about the second day that didn't exist the first day. As opposed to what? As opposed to the Hag. Hag means Sukkot. On Sukkot, the, the Koba Musaf every day is different from that of the previous day. So it's, it's, a, it's as it were, a Hag in its own right. And therefore, each day has its own Halel. The Gemara goes on to say, So if that's the case, every day there's a special korban. So what about Shabbat? There's a korban musaf on Shabbat, which you don't have on the day before, on Friday, or the day following, on Sunday. So why don't you say halal every Shabbat? The Gemara says, It's not called the mo'ed. Shabbat is not called the mo'ed. In other words, to say Hanukkah, it has to be called the mo'ed. It has to be a Chag, not, not a Shabbat. It's, there's a difference in a Chag and Shabbat. In some ways, Shabbat is more important, more holy than a Chag. But it's not called a Mo'ed, it's not a day for, for, for Halil. The Gemara says further, Rosh Chodesh dikre Mo'ed lema, but Rosh Chodesh is a Mo'ed. The Torah describes Rosh Chodesh as a Mo'ed. So why don't we say Halil every Rosh Chodesh? And you may, of course, ask me at this point, but we do. And the answer is that we don't, or rather, we say Halil, Chatsi Halil, which is not real Halil. It's only a Minhag which actually, by the way, began in Bavel, as is Mefurash and the Tawud Bavli, Masechet Merila. In other words, Mikar Hadin, you don't have to say Halel on, on Rosh Chodesh. And there was a Minhag which grew up in Bavel to say Halel on Rosh Chodesh. Rav, who came from Eretz Yisrael to Bavel, found himself in Shul one morning in Bavel on Rosh Chodesh, and they started saying Halel. He didn't know what was going on. So, so the Gemara tells us, because he hadn't seen such a thing before. But that's the minhag with which we are all familiar. But because it's not a chova, it's not minhadin, it's only a minhag, we only say chatsi halil. That's also why, according to the Rambam, for example, you don't even say a bracha on halil and rosh chodesh. Most Muslims disagree, but that's a separate issue. Okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting discussion, but the fact is that it's, it's not the real halil. Real halil is only halil shalom. So the Gemara is here referring to the Ikar Hadin, and it says, on Rosh Chodesh we don't say Halel, and they say, why don't we? Because it's not a day where it's asur to do Melacha. In other words, Rosh Chodesh is not a, a real Chag in the full sense, because there's no Isur Melacha. Okay. Then it goes on to say, Rosh Hashanah, Yom HaKippurim, Di'ikru Mu'ed, Wa'idkidush Ba'asiyat Melacha Lema. Okay, so according to your logic, why don't we say Halel on Rosh Chodesh, on Rosh Hashanah, Yom HaKippurim, because they are called a Mu'ed, and there is an Isur Melacha. Mishum de Rabbi Abao, because Rabbi Abao said uh, on Rosh Hashanah, there is, it's Yom Hadin, and uh, I, I read briefly what it says here. It says, If Shah Melech Yoshev al Kisei Adin, with Sifre Hayim, with Sifre Methim, Petuchim Lefanai, with Selo Marim Shira Lefanai, it's not a day for, for uh, celebrating in, a, in an unfettered and unrestrained way. Because, Bechol often, there's a certain uh, solemnness the day because it is Yom Hadin. So it's not a day, it's not Ra'ui to say Halal on such a day when Sifre Hayim and Sifre Mithim are open before Hashem. All right, now what is, what is the next question, obviously, of the Gemara? What about Hanukkah? It says, Well, Hanukkah is none of the things you just told us. It's not a Mu'ed, there's no Yisul Malacha, and yet we say Halal. So what, why does this? What does it say? Mishum? Nisa, because of the Ness. Now, most people reading this Gemara would immediately say to themselves, Ah, Ness, well, I know, I know what it's talking about, Ness Bar Hashemin. 
Obviously. What is in there? So how do we translate the word ness normally? Miracle. Miracle. In English, at least, the word miracle implies, uh, not only implies, it is basically states explicitly something, something supernatural, something beyond, beyond the bounds of natural events. Correct? That's what a miracle means. But in Hebrew, as we're about to see, it's not necessarily so. But if a person thinks that a miracle in English equals a ness in Hebrew, and you see it in the Gemara or in Aramaic, Mishum Nisa, a person might think, well, this must be referring to Nespach Hashem. And that's why we say Halel on, on, on Hanukkah, because of Nespach Hashem. And I just said a moment ago, that's not true. So now, we, now we, let's read on and we'll see. Purim, de'ika nisalem. All right, what about Purim? That there is a Nes, and we should say Halel, but we don't. Correct? We read the Megillah instead. And that's what it goes on to say. Rabbi Yitzchak explained. It was a Nes in Chutzlaretz. It was a time of Galut. It didn't... It did not alter in, in a truly significant and meaningful way the national reality of the Jewish people. They were subjects on the, of the Persian Empire before the events of Haman and Ahasuerus and, and Mordechai, and they remained so afterwards. So that nothing really changed, nothing major. What happened was there was a Hatzalah, there was a Gzera to exterminate the Jews, and that, just one moment, and that, has, and that Gzera did not come about, Baruch Hashem. But there was no other major change, and, that's, and that was in Chutzlah, right? So that, all that event takes on a much more, uh, a less central uh, plays a less central role in, in Jewish history, and therefore we don't say Halel on Purim. But what did the Gemara say? It said, Purim, de'ika nisa. There is a Ness on Purim, so we should be saying Halel. So now, let's ask ourselves, what Ness is it referring to on said, Purim? I, I, I was just uh, going back to what you said earlier, that about the Yom Adin, but uh, we say it for Halel. First of all, Rosh Hashanah is uh, Yom Adin, and there is a judgment aspect to Sukkot, yet that's the one where we say hollow day after day after day. There is a certain aspect of Din, but it's not the same as Yom Hadin. It's and not the I, same as Kol, uh, Kol, Kol Bnei Adam of Rim Lefanok Venomeron. It's not the same thing. Shoeva, but uh, it's basically judgment of water. As I said, there is, a, there is a certain aspect of din on, on, on uh, Sukkot. There's also a certain aspect of din on, on Pesach. But it's not the same as Yom HaDin on Rosh Hashanah. It's, it can't be compared. Uh, it can't, yeah, uh, but my, my point was that uh, the idea is that we... Uh, uh, you said that we, we don't, uh, that's, that was one of the reasons, I think, I heard uh, why we don't say for Allah on... I know where you're going, but don't go there now. A, because we haven't got the time, and B, and B, we can discuss that later. But it's it's going to take us off off the topic. We have to get we have to want, want to wrap things up, and and uh, explain what it says here in the Gemara Masechet Arachin. The Gemara and Arachin ends up by asking, well, based on what you just told us, on Purim we should be saying Halel because there was a Ness. And then it goes on to explain, no, we don't, because it was a nest in Chutzlaretz, and it wasn't really uh, a nest that, that changed uh, the course of Jewish history, etc., just one moment. And therefore, we don't say Halel on Purim. But we have to ask ourselves, what nest is it referring to? What nest took place on Purim? What supernatural event took place on Purim? There were no Nisim in the supernatural sense during the events of Purim. If we all know that even the name of Hashem doesn't appear in Medhilat Hester, correct? Whatever happened, the, all the events can be understood and, and seen as, 
an interesting juxtaposition of coincidental events, but they're all events in the, within the natural course of, of, of and, 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 and way of the world. In other words, there's an emperor, he's obviously a, a very unsavory character, and he, and he needs a new wife, and he has a, a beauty uh, a beauty pageant uh, arranged uh, with all these bethuloth and eventually chooses uh, a new wife, etc., etc., and it happens to be Esther, and, and, and Mordechai happens to be the, her uncle, and then there happens to be Haman in the picture, and, and Mordechai overhears some information, and we all know the story, and it all leads uh, inexorably to the result that Mordechai and Esther are able to undo the, the plans of Haman, but it's all it's all within the natural way of, of the world. It's not, there's nothing supernatural. So what's the nest being referred to here by the Gemara? So therefore, and with this I wish to end, we are forced to understand that the true Jewish understanding of the term nes, what the Gemara here says in Aramaic, nisa, is not the, the word or the translation in English. Miracle is not an accurate translation. I know there are a couple of questions. Let me just finish this thought, and then we'll yes. take a few questions. That is, not, that is not a correct understanding of the term ness. In English, miracle means something supernatural, but the word ness does not mean that in Hebrew necessarily at all. Very often, ness refers to some outstanding, unusual event, something that we would not expect to happen. It's not the, it would not be the normal outcome, but it's not supernatural. And this connects also to the... Uh, the essential, the more uh, primal meaning of the word nes, the shoresh, nes, nun, samach in Hebrew, initially does not, does not mean a miracle. What does it mean? A banner, a flag, right? It says in the Pasuk in, in Tehillim, which means you have done something which is like a banner for all your, all your followers to, to look at. In other words, when you, you know on a battlefield you have soldiers, for example, fighting one army against another. So there's always someone who's holding the banner, the flag of the king or what have you, which is the rallying point or to, to show that you know, the, the king is still alive and still fighting and fight on and don't give up. The ness is something that you see from afar, from a distance, from a long way away. It's something that you can look up to and it encourages you perhaps. And it's something that you take note of because it stands up, it's higher than the surrounding objects and under. So it's visible, correct? It stands out, it sticks out. A ness is something which sticks out because it's, un it's unusual, it's, it's special. The events of Purim are special because that kind of progression of of events, even though they're all explicable within, within uh, using the terms and, and the frames of reference of the Persian Empire and how things worked at that time, one can explain each of those events as they occurred in entirely natural, in a entirely natural and uh, down-to-earth way. The fact that these events took place in this order, one followed on the, on the heels of the next, leading to a certain uh, unexpected result, that is something that is in all uh, entirely correct to say this is this is an s this is something special this is something that hashem brought about because uh, it would be hard to believe that such a, such a result would would would, uh, would would be the the final product of su of such a from such a situation in the same way we can say with complete justification that for instance mohammed shesh Amim was an s there were no supernatural events of which i am aware but uh, it was a, a, a miraculous, outstanding 
an unexpected uh, victory in its in its uh, in, in the, sp- the speed with which it took place and how complete it was, etc., etc. And that's exactly what the Gemara is saying that a ness is not necessarily something when it says Purim there was a ness, so why don't we say halal? It's telling you exactly this. A ness is not necessarily something which is supernatural. You don't have to expect or demand from Hashem uh, supernatural events in order to to understand that Hashem is behind these events and in order to thank Hashem for those events. And we don't actually have to uh, base our understanding and appreciation of and our celebration of Hanukkah on supernatural events either. And if you ask me personally, do I think there was an Espach Hashem in at the time of Hanukkah? In all honesty, I would tell you, I, I think almost certainly there was not. Why do I say that? Not, not because I don't think Hashem can cause such an event to occur. Of course, Hashem, Hashem could bring the entire universe into existence from absolutely nothing, which is both what the Torah tells us, and it also happens to be what science tells us today. They just call it something else. They call it the Big Bang, and they just explain that roughly 14 billion years ago, and there's always, you know, a few, couple of hundred billion years, one way or the other, no one's quite sure about, um, there was nothing, and all of a sudden there was something, which is a very interesting phenomenon, because that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, and that's basically what the Torah tells us. Hashem can do anything. He can bring the universe into, into existence. He can create all matter and energy in an instant. He can certainly cause a small amount of oil to burn a few days extra until you can get your act together and produce some Shemen Tahor. That's really not a big deal. And again, it's not something to say halal about. It's not something even to get very excited about. We find in the Gemara, in Masechet Ta'anif, that a certain Chacham said to his, his daughter, who said, we haven't got oil to light Shabbat candles. They were very poor. He said, well, take vinegar and, uh, and light that, because he who said to oil that it should burn can also say to vinegar that it should burn. In other words, Hashem can do any such thing, of course. So if I say I don't think it happened, it's not because I... I don't believe such a thing. Could happen. Of course it could happen. But if I see that in al it's not mentioned, I ask myself, I think, a very reasonable question. Why is it not mentioned? If, if such a thing happened and it was something was known, it was factual, it was real, and uh, everyone knew it was so, why would it not be mentioned? Number one. Number two, in Sefer Makabim Aleph, written by a Jew who was a witness to the events. Apparently he was a soldier in the army of Yudah Makabi. That's what we understand. doesn't mention such a thing. In fact, in Sefer Makabim, it gives another explanation why, they, uh, why Hanukkah was, uh, was made to be eight days in length. And with this really I will end. The, uh, the reason given there in Sefer Makabim Aleph is that during the campaign, they, they were fighting the Greeks for a number of years, approximately three, three and a half years. And of course, just before Hanukkah, you have Sukkoth. A couple of months before Hanukkah, you have Sukkoth. The, the final breakthrough took place just before Hanukkah. During Sukkoth, they were still, uh, as it says in, in Sefer Makabim, they were living like wild animals, the Jews, our forefathers, who were fighting the, the, the Greeks and their, and their Jewish supporters to, to fight for their, for their ability to live in Eretz Yisrael as Jews. They, they, they couldn't live in their cities and their homes. They had to flee their homes and their land. They had to live in caves like wild animals. That's what it says in, in Sefer Makabe. It says they were living like Hayot HaSadeh in, in Ma'aroth, 
in, if you go to Beth Guvrin, you can see what the, you can see the Ma'aroch where they, which they dug out of the living rock to hide in. They were hiding. There was a guerrilla war. They they lived from hand to mouth. You can imagine the suffering and the and the Masilut Nefesh, etc., involved. Something quite amazing. Beca- and therefore, they were not a- able to celebrate the Chag of Sukkoth for eight days. And it says in Sefer Makabim Aleph. Therefore, we celebrate Hanukkah, which begins on Kaf Hebechislev, which was the first day of the Hanukkah, or the reinstitution of the Avodah and the Mikdash. We celebrate it for eight days in, in order to make up for the eight days of Sukkot that we were not able to celebrate and, and observe properly. So it says in Sefer Makabim Allah, written by people who were there at the time. Now, if the reason for the eight days was Nespach Hashem, why didn't they mention that? Wouldn't that be at least something to mention in passing? So for these reasons... Uh, and because of all the all the, the other explanations we find in Megillah Ta'anith, in the Perusha Megillah Ta'anith, which don't mention it, my uh, feeling and my my uh, inclination is to say that it didn't happen at all. And, it's, and that, to me, makes no difference. In fact, uh, it, it's it's not important. It doesn't have anything. It doesn't mean anything significant or or. Uh, Oh, it has no great meaning in my eyes, whether there was such a thing or not. The important thing is is the the fact that the Jewish people were willing to lay down their lives in order to be able to live in Eretz Yisrael as Jews, because as I said before, the only option left to them by the Goyim and their Jewish supporters was to either live as Greeks, as Goyim, or die as Jews. They had, there was no third option. The Jews were willing to lay their lives their li- the lives of their families, their panasa, everything on the line, and fight a guerrilla war for years, for a number of years, against a very powerful enemy, which, and eventually they were victorious, and we see in this the, the Yad Hashem, without a doubt, and they, and they were thus saved from the terrible persecutions and situation in which they found themselves, which the Rambam described so eloquently before, as we read, that they, their money, their daughters, their homes, everything was, was being taken from them and they were being uh, downtrodden and, and beaten into... And rod, 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 they were ridden over roughshod. Um, all this was turned around and we, they were able to establish their own independent sovereign government in Eretz Yisrael, and they were able to reinstitute the Avodan de Mikdash, which is the, the centerpiece of, of Jewish uh, existence in Eretz Yisrael. If those aren't sufficient reasons to celebrate for eight days and say Halel and say Anisim, and to celebrate the Hanukkah of the Mizbech and of the Mikdash by lighting candles, which was, as, as we read in the Hilat Tanif, which was the first act that, that they were able to perform, if those aren't sufficient reason, for sufficient reasons, then I really do not know what would be a sufficient reason. So you can either choose to accept the claim that there was a Nespach Hashem, or you can choose to believe, in my view, that there was not. Either way, it's not the essential and uh, really meaningful aspect of Hanukkah. And, that's, and that's, that's something that I think we should internalize and teach our children. As I said to you, uh, one attitude, one point of view within the Jewish world places uh, a lot of stock in supernatural events and supernatural uh, capabilities. So the Talmud Bavli uh, sees the Mashiach as someone who can perform miracles. And only someone who can do that is, is a worthy candidate. But the Talmud Yerushalmi doesn't think so. And, uh, and I think it's a natural uh, 
It's, it's something which is easily understood. It's a natural progression. If you believe that that's significant events are always of a supernatural nature, then you're, you're very uh, likely to, a legend of that kind is, 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 is very, very easily uh, created or, or, or accepted or, and spoken of in those terms by, by many people. But again, that's not the, the essential thing about Hanukkah. The reason we celebrate Hanukkah, the reason we say Hallel, the reason we say Al Nisim, and I think even the reason we light candles is not for that reason. But of all those things that we do, if there's anything that's connected to Nesbah Hashem, it's only the lighting of the candles. The Hallel, the Al Nisim, and the, and the Simcha is not for that reason. And that is something that Maharal wrote explicitly. Now, I think the lady at the back there had a. Yeah. Why do you say Hallel even though that, let's say that, Pesach and I did not. I did not hear or understand the question. Why did um? Why do you say Halal Hanukkah? That's something so important to do. Were written in the Torah. Yes. Why do you say Purim and Hanukkah? You do say Halal, even though there's there's a difference. There's a first of all. There's a difference between the Halal that we say on Chagim such as Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, there we say Hallel because, first of all, because it's a Chag. Every Chag, it says this, it states this in Masechet Pesachim, Dav Kofi Yobhet, it says the Nevi'im were metaken Hallel as something that is said both on Chagim, simply because it's a Chag. In the case of Pesach, there's also the added fact or added aspect of Pesach that was also Yeshua, Yitziat Mitzrayim, Mi'avdut Laherut, etc., but every Chag we say Hallel simply because it's a Chag. In the case of, in the case of Purim and Hanukkah, we don't say it because, in Purim we don't say, we don't say Hallel for the reason explained. So we say and read and say the, the Megillah. On, on, on Hallel, uh, Hanukkah we say Hallel, not because it's a Chag in the Torah, it's not, but because of the great salvation and the Yeshua that the Jewish people experienced, which uh, entirely turned around the reality of the Jewish people, as I said, had those events not taken place, had we not been victorious against their enemies, I believe the Jewish people would have disappeared, would have ceased to exist. Because of the events in Hanukkah, uh, the Jewish people are here. We're here today and we're here to talk about it. And that's a very significant event. And the, and the Gemara says over there, that the second reason for saying Hallel is to thank Hashem for a great Yeshua, for a great salvation. <coughs> and that's also what it says in Masechet Merilah, that we say Hallel when we find ourselves in a situation uh, and we are saved from Mimawit Lahayim or Mi'avdut Lahiruth. So that's, that's why we say Hallel. Yes. Was the threat of the, was the threat of the Greeks greater than what happened later with the fourth exile? In terms of... Like you, you say that if it weren't for the, for the victory of Hanukkah, Mm-hmm. then the Jewish people would have been destroyed. But there was a point that came later when we were completely driven out of Eretz Yisrael and we survived that. First of all, well, this is a, could be a lengthy discussion. I don't think we, we have time for that. But very briefly, at that point in history, uh, the time of Hanukkah, the Jews in Eretz Yisrael had been living already for some time under uh, Greek rule. And the, even before there was a, an official government policy to eradicate Judaism, to outlaw Judaism, even before that, there was a long period of assimilation. 
whereby the upper classes, the aristocracy, the, the very, very wealthy amongst the Jews, were essentially all Hellenists, and the influence of Hellenism was, was spreading throughout the, throughout the Jewish society. And there was a real battle for the soul of the Jewish people. And eventually, as a result of this, the, um, this re revolt against the Greeks uh, erupted and, and was successful. And this successful revolt against, against the Greeks, who were not trying to exterminate the Jews physically, they just wanted them to become like them. They wanted them to become Greeks, to become citizens of, of the, of the uh, uh, enlightened Greek world, to forget all your silly uh, religious ideas and practices, become like us, we're the wave of the future, join us like your wealthy arist aristocratic uh, businessmen have already done. <coughs> There was a real battle for the soul of the Jewish people. And that battle was won by the Jews, not by the, not by the Greeks and their supporters. And that galvanized the Jewish people for all time. So everything that followed, even when we had the Romans and persecutions of the Romans following the Bar Kokhba revolt, etc., the, there was this national memory that had galvanized the Jewish people. And we see that it, it, it has galvanized us and given us inner strength and determination to survive and maintain our Jewishness down to the present day, which is well over 2,200 years. The, the modern Zionists, that's what's even Right. The, the modern Zionists were looking for Jewish heroes, immediately jumped on Yudah Maccabi, the Maccabim. That's why we have soccer teams called you know, Maccabi Tel Aviv or basketball teams and, uh, and uh, etc. You know, the early Zionists made a big deal of Hanukkah because they spoke about Jewish Sovereignty, it spoke about Jewish uh, um, military prowess and courage, and but also religiously. From a spiritual, ideological point of view, it was the point at which the Jewish people had to decide, are we going to give in and just lie down quietly, basically, and die as a Jewish people and give in to these superior forces and numbers? Or are we going to fight for our true identity, for who we really are? And the Jewish people made that decision. And a majority of the Jewish people supported that's how I read the, the, the events. We haven't got statistics. We haven't got uh, public opinion polls from that time. And any, anyhow, we all know that we devour seker tirchak, and we know they don't mean they don't mean that much. But uh, we can't. But my reading of the historical um, text that we have is that there was a significant minority. My, my guess is something like a third of the Jewish people were already completely assimilated Hellenists, but two thirds. Again, that's my, I hope, somewhat educated guess. We're not. And if I'm a bit wrong, let's say it was 60-40. Let's say it was 50-50. It doesn't really matter. The fact is there were a lot of Jews who were not willing to just to give up and, and roll over uh, on, their, on their backs and belly up and say, okay, we give in. That's it. They didn't do that. And that laid down the the uh, ground rules, as it were, for the Jewish people for the rest of time. There would not have been a Bar Kokhba revolt if there hadn't been the Hashmonaim either. The Jewish people's will to resist religious persecution and to remain Jewish at all costs, I think that was forged in fire and in battle and with blood and tears by, by the revolt of the Hashmonaim. And that uh, is something that res resonates uh, uh, throughout history down to the present day. That's, and therefore, I think that, was, that is a seminal event that, that preserved and uh, 
granted us special uh, strength and and uh, a, a special ability to overcome all all obstacles and all uh, all all foes and all uh, challenges. One more question. Yes. There are two explanations that we saw here, and you can choose whichever you prefer. The, the one that we've all been taught from childhood, that we've all heard, is Nespah Hashem, and that's why we light candles, to commemorate the fact that when they re-entered the Mikdash, they found only one small container of oil, which should have lasted one day. It lasted eight days, during which time they were able to prepare uh, Shemen Tahor to continue lighting the menorah. And to commemorate this miracle of oil burning longer than it normally should have, we, we light candles. That's one explanation. The other explanation is that there was no such miracle, but of all the various avodot in the Mikdash that had to be renewed and reinstituted, once they were now again in control of the Mikdash, the, 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 the easiest avodah to perform that could be done within the space of hours perhaps was to uh, begin lighting candles of the menorah and the hechal on a daily basis. Why? Because that only requires some oil. By the way, it doesn't require shemen tahor. By the way, this is a question that all the poskim discuss. This, because that, that, the, the other version doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense because you don't actually need Shemen Tahor. If there is no Shemen Tahor available, the halakha is and you use whatever oil you have. But we'll put that aside for now. The easiest of the avodot of the Migdash to reinstitute and reinstate is to create a menorah from anything at all, pieces of iron and wood and whatever you have, bash together something workable, even just that'll last just a few days until you can build something a bit better, and put some oil on the, on the receptacle on the top and light it. That is something that can be done in a matter of hours, as opposed to what? As opposed to rebuilding a Mizbeach, which means you have to take the, the other one, tear, tear it down, and bring stones and, and workmen, etc. That takes at least some days. So the first uh, of the the first specific avodah or action, the pu'ulah that could be taken in the Mikdash immediately upon re-entering the Mikdash and having driven the Greeks out of Yerushalayim was to put together a menorah and light, and light the candles. That's what it says here, ot dalad, on the top of page, dalad, on page two. It says, l'fi shenichnesu yewanim b'heichal, u'cheshegavrav yad b'et hashmonai, lo haya b'med lahadlik. There wasn't, with what to light, not oil, there wasn't a menorah. So it says, They brought seven pieces of iron, and they built a menorah, and they lit it. In the meantime, the coming days, it still took a while to put everything else in, in order and create the kleshareth, the various vessels required in the Mikdash. That took a bit longer. So the, the initial event that symbolized this turn of events and this re-entering and re-institution of the avodah <coughs> of the Mikdash was the menorah, was the, was the candle. So therefore that became the, the symbol that, that commemorates these events. That's the other explanation that we have here. Thank you, Rabbi Bar Chaim. We would like to encourage our listeners to share these podcasts with friends and send in your responses. We would also like to suggest the following opportunity to our listeners. 
If you identify with Rabbi Barheim's message and would like to sponsor or dedicate a podcast in honor or memory of a loved one, if you would like to obtain Birkon, Nusach Eretz Yisrael, or invite the rabbi for a speaking engagement, please email us at office at machonshilo.org.